Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, off life. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Jeremy Dyson, writer extraordinaire of Ghost Stories, League of Gentlemen, The Warlock Effect. Jeremy, honestly, if we went through your writing credits, we wouldn't have room for anything else. But thank you for all of them, because not only have I enjoyed every single one of the things you've written, but this has given me a fantastic opportunity to revisit in the name of research. So thank you. That will creep in later, I think. Um, What book have you chosen for us? So I have gone with a book called Haunted Britain. Uh, by the wonderfully named Anthony D. Hippersley Cokes. I think that's how you pronounce it, double-barreled name. And this was a book that I received for Christmas. It must have been Christmas 1974, I'm guessing, I'm thinking. So how old were you? I would have been eight. And I was known for loving, even at that young age, all things to do with ghosts, the macabre, the creepy... It was actually probably about the third or fourth book of True Hauntings that I got bought as a present. But, um, well, we'll go into why it stuck and stayed with me over the years. Well, let's just say for an eight-year-old, it's it's an unusual choice because it's quite dense. The cover is uh, predictably a sort of ruin of something, which it's easy to imagine a lady in white waves from one of the windows. Yes. But it's an anthology written in... Um, Quite small typescript, I would say, illustrated by Robert Estill's specially taken photographs. But these are little sketches of the dense amount, probably only skating the surface, but the dense amount of allegedly haunted places in Britain. It's comprehensive, but it is incredibly detailed. So did you sit down and read it cover to cover or did you go to an area or did you just look at the pictures? I poured over this book again and again and again all through my subsequent childhood, into my teenage years, probably even into my 20s. It was a, it was a constant companion. I mean, it's what, there's so many things that are extraordinary about this book. I mean, it says on the flap, on the dust jacket, it is the ideal Vada Mecum for the visitor in search of the offbeat and the eerie. So I, I had to look up what Vada Mecum means, but it's a book that you keep constantly at your side. It's Latin for like a reference book, you know. But it's also like a, a, a gazetteer. Is that, how, is that how you say it? What it reminded me of as a child is my parents had the Egon Rone restaurant guide, which was an authoritative guide to all the restaurants across the country. And this is what this book looked like. And it had the same authority for ghostly spots that Egon Rone had for restaurants. And it was written without question as if these things were real. 
So the tone of the book is just as factual as Egon Roney's about restaurants. And I think that was the thing that made it cling onto my imagination because it was like proof. It wasn't saying a ghost might be here. It was saying a ghost is here. And not just ghosts, but uh, mythical creatures and uh, well, haunted wells or, or places there that you could go and get healing from and all kinds of phenomena. So it was a, a portal into another world, a parallel world that existed alongside the everyday world that you were stuck in. Because everything in, in my childhood, and I know many of my friends who feel similarly at that time, was about escaping from the ordinary in the everyday. You know, the 70s was a pretty bleak time to grow up. And um, I mean, not as bleak as growing up in wartime, but uh, it was it was still quite dark in the mid, in the mid seventies, a lot what was going on, and so part of it was wanting to escape from that. I think from the bleakness that surrounded us, and uh, and this because it was in the form of a travel guide, it was almost like a literal portal into other worlds. Well, we'll talk about the sort of the meat of the book in a moment, but um, I think what's obvious reading it for the first time, and actually my parents also had Egon Rone, but. There is an element of the authorial voice in this. Yes. You know, it isn't, it isn't just taking facts from lots of different people and putting them in order. He definitely has an opinion about some of these things, even if it's only somebody that you met along the way who claimed to have seen something. You can sense that he is circumspect and, and yet he is giving it, as you say, as if it is fact. So when you were little, did you believe in ghosts? Oh, totally. And wanted to believe in them as well. They're sort of two separate things. There was a yearning there to experience a supernatural phenomena of any kind. And I was desperate to go to Loch Ness. I so wanted to go to Loch Ness to see the monster and was never taken as a child because it was too far. Didn't actually make it up there till I was in my mid-twenties. But anything like that. And that was one of the things that the 70s was a good time for because there was a big paranormal boom. So around the same time, I guess, as this book came out, you were also getting Yuri Geller on television. And the paranormal was taken seriously. There was a brief window where it was taken seriously as a sort of pseudoscience or not, not even pseudoscience, as a, as a science in waiting. And the ghosts were hovering on the edge of that. So, yes, I really wanted to believe and really wanted to see, experience anything that would give me proof that it actually existed. There's something of a correlation, isn't there, between the bleakness of the time and interest in paranormal activity. I mean, it's da not dormant. There's always people searching after it, exposing it. But there's definitely a, there's a swing now towards that. There's, there's something about the comfort of the, the irrationally possible that we search when actual life is tricky. Tricky to live in. Well, and, and you know, I've, it, something that I've, because I've in some ways devoted my life to understanding it and large portions of my work have been connected to it in various ways. I've read a lot and studied a lot over the years. And you begin to understand some of the psychology behind that as you do that reading. Of course, we live in a very secular age, a, a time when religion in, is in decline as it never has been, actually. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's been in decline all my life, but it's kind of gone into even more rapid decline, I think, it's, in the it's last... It's voluble now, the decline. Yeah, the five or ten years. And yet, one of the things that characterises us as a species 
that's totally cross-cultural is religion and religious practice. So we are the first society, perhaps outside the Soviet Union, that has no religion, officially speaking, or in terms of, you know, for most of us, for, for what was once a, a Christian country. And so I think there's a huge gap there, a need to believe in the transcendent, to experience something larger than ourselves. And obviously the paranormal and any kind of supernatural phenomena fits into that gap. It satisfies a, a yearning, or at least it gestures in the direction of satisfying a, a yearning, I think. And were you a, a voracious fiction reader as well when you were little? Oh, yes, I was, yes. My, I was very lucky because I grew up in a house of books with parents who were both readers. I mean, I focused in on Doctor Who books were my favourite for a period of about seven or eight years because there were so many of them because they started publishing them as novels in the 1970s. Anything to do with uh, ghosts, monsters, myths, legends, my shelves groaned under the weight of that. Did it make you afraid of or think about death or were the two things not connected in your mind? No, I think I thought about death from quite an early age. I think I was um, aware of it and scared of it from fairly early on. I think there were some early deaths in our family, friends of my parents, and my auntie died when I was in my early teenage years. So yes, death I was very aware of and very scared of from maybe younger than is normal, if there is such a thing as, as normal. But I don't know if I connected the ghosts and the death because ghosts were a fun thing. I mean, yes, there was the thrill of being scared, but it wasn't something you wanted to run away from. It was the opposite. So whether ghosts are a way of processing death and death fears, I'm not sure that they are. It's, I'm not sure it's as straightforward as that. Well, let's get to Anthony Hippisley Cokes or Cox. Um, he, he has different spellings of this, you know, down the years. Um, because obviously uh, it's a posh family and his family tree has links to uh, the Reese Moggs. Oh, really? Oh, that's, so, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. And his, his wife, to whom the book is dedicated, Araminta, was also his... <laughs> that's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? Araminta. It, uh, well, it is, yes. But, but even his introduction is, is very him, I think, the way, the way that he describes it. Actually, he says that he doesn't know whether he believes in ghosts, but he definitely believes in the possibility. And... Um, it's quite a, a lengthy introduction, but but as part of it, he, he suggests other books to read alongside this as a corollary, which are more fact-based and investigative. And he says such books are an admiral corrective to romantic overindulgence. You see, he takes that tone in the introduction. I accept that. But there's some of the entries are so matter of fact yes. that it goes against that. And also, I mean, the absolute killer is the last line of the What's Written on the Dust Jacket, where it says, the author has travelled widely in Britain and visited most of the places described, blah, 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 blah. And then it says, while checking sites in Bristol, the author's wife saw the ghost of a man in broad daylight. And this is the best one. And the photographer was overcome by such a sense of evil at Saddle Abbey that he could not bear to stay longer than a few minutes. I can't tell you how many times I read and reread that sentence as a kid because it I mean it's like a short story in one sentence it's perfect because it because really you is. don't normally see something like that on a this isn't a sensationalist book you know this isn't a far from it this is a this is a sort of semi-academic 
it's a reference book. So to see a statement like that made on uh, the, the inner flap of of the dust jacket of an authoritative reference book is tantamount to saying ghosts exist, at least when you're eight years old. It does, yeah. Yeah, beat that Egon no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um Yeah, because to which it's an academic term, there is, there is also a key to symbols in the book, including things like hauntings, ghosts and poltergeists, which will have all the same symbol. And they've got um, a holy little, healing little and wishing skull. Wells. Yeah, a little yeah. skull. Holy healing and wishing wells, sacred magic, mysterious places, followed by witchcraft, sorcery, curses. So, you know, nothing is left to chance here. You know, you, you can cross-reference, which again, as a child, is a very pleasing thing to do, isn't it? That's right. And, you know, in those pre-internet days, <clears throat> it definitely had that about it. There was a lot of what what they would say intertextuality. It was more like a game than a book in that sense. It was quite close to those uh, find your own adventure books uh, that were also popular when I was a kid. So that was part of what made it more than many other books, I think, in, t- in my imagination, was that there were so many different ways into it. You couldn't get bored of it, you know. And I never felt like I'd got through the whole thing. I don't even think that now. Did you ever entreat your parents to take you to any of the places? Well, of course I did. And (laughs) and naturally enough, I started in Yorkshire, of course, because that was where I lived. And I was, again, lucky as a kid that we got taken on lots of trips out. Leeds is very well placed for runs out into the country. And so many of these places were within reach. And many of them we already went to. So I think Brimham Rocks would have been the first one. There's a, there's a photo of Brimham Rocks on page 136. Here was an activity that you could do for yourself. It's a photograph of, it's not actually a ghost, it's, it's more of a myth and a legend. Well, like many of Robert's pictures, it's not the finest example of the photographic art, is it? It's, that one um, isn't, the Brimham Rocks one, no. It's prosaic in the extreme. It, it is, but you know, something about that adds to the charm, I would say. Um, but it says, uh, so it doesn't have a skeleton next to it. It doesn't have a, a, it's got a little star for a wishing well. And it says, Broom and Rocks, which include the Lover's Rock, the Wishing Stone, where you place the middle finger of the right hand in the hole and wish, and the Rocking Stone, which moves only at the efforts of an honest man, which is what the below par photograph is of. And we definitely would go and seek out the Rocking Stone and make jokes. I had reputation as being a liar as a child as being a, a spinner of tall tales. And so much was made of the fact that I couldn't move the rocking stone. <laughs> who, um, who, but then nobody else could move the rocking stone. Who else was in the car then? Have you got brothers and sisters? Yes, my elder brother, my younger sister. So there were five of us. They were wonderful those days out. And I, one of the reasons I think I moved back up to Yorkshire after we uh, had our first child was because I wanted to take them on those days out. Um so yeah, so 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 Broomham Rocks was was one. York, of course, was another that we went to a lot. Um, it has a wonderful description here of Sir John Rearsby in 1717 saw a piece of paper blowing in the wind suddenly turn into a monkey and then a bear, which is something that's so strange it probably undoubtedly happened. Really, imagine him coming back and telling that story. <laughs> I mean, he may he may have had an amount to drink. Before oh, God, that may have been taken. The well ones I find absolutely fascinating. There's another one, the well at St. Cain, St. Cain possibly. Mm. Um, whichever is the first of a bridal couple to drink here will be the dominant partner. So uh, specific, isn't it? It's so specific. And also one feels that knowing that, the dominant partner would simply sprint up the hill. <laughs> 
if she's wearing heels, she's at a disadvantage <laughs> from the word go. If you go back a few pages, there's a, a lovely colour plate of a well in Derbyshire, Hall Well, it says dressed at Tissington in Derbyshire, which is a sort of huge, is it, oh, it looks yeah. like it's a floral display. It is, very much Tobias so. and the Angel. And so this is, I mean, this is so 1970s because it, it could be a still from The Devil Rides Out because... Were it not for the preventing chain, it could be. <laughs> yes, I'm sad it's, about the chain. But, you know, it's got, a, it's got a Star of David in the midst there, presumably because uh, yeah. Tobias and the Angel is a story from the Old Testament, although it's only in the Catholic version of the Old Testament, not in the Protestant version of the Old Testament, where it's part of the Apocrypha. But... Um, it's kind of inexplicable, you know, and I wonder if it's still there now, why this well is associated with the story of Tobias and the angel. But, but it's such a glorious sight and so strange and bizarre. It is, it's lovely. The, and the, the colours are great. Yeah. And I hope it's still there. So there's an, another example of the sort of weirdness that you would fall into just by turning the pages and the fact that these places were just down the road was all part of the richness of the experience of this book. There's something, isn't there, though, in the fact that all of these ghosts are from your, you know, they're old, they're wearing different clothes. And I always feel sorry for them because they're condemned to wear the same outfit all the time, <laughs> which personally I wouldn't want. <laughs> That's why I think when you and Andy Nyman wrote Ghost Stories, mm. it had extra potency because it was based firmly, thumpingly mm. in the present, in mm. things that we see every day, which are in some ways, much more scary than a vague woman in white going ahead of you somewhere. And, and I wonder whether the fascination of, of these ghosts is simply because, simply because they were, they've been dead a long time. So they have almost, in some ways, lost their power. The present is more frightening. That's a very good point. There's a different character and tone to something that would be perceived as a contemporary haunting. It's, it's almost a different kind of phenomena. And interestingly enough, that contemporary side of Ghost Stories, the play and then the film after it, the first story in it was very much inspired by, there was a, a, a sort of later version of Haunted Britain called the Faber Book of True Ghost Stories, oh. which came out about 1989, I think, late 80s. And it was a similar approach where the author had gone around, it wasn't a gazetteer like this, but it, it had gone around interviewing lots of people. So it, so it was very real. And most of the stories in it w had that contemporary feeling rather than this sort of gothic fiction feel. And uh, there was one story in particular, which me and Mark Gatiss just thought was one of the most terrifying things we've ever read, precisely because nobody could have made it up. It was so weird. And it was a night watchman in a large 1930s factory, but in the present day just describing something that happened to him on one of his last nights in the job where he, he was sat in this very lonely, empty space and in the corner far, far away, sort of on the other side of the factory floor, which was semi-derelict, a little patch of light opened up and like an iris opening out. And it grew and grew and grew until it became the factory floor, but fully inhabited and during the day, probably like 30 or 40 years before that. And he was w just watching it happen. He was watching these people going about their daily business. And then it sort of receded again. And it was such a strange phenomena. And it was so specifically described that 
it, it couldn't have been sort of made up off the top of his head. Something extraordinary must have happened to him. Now, it was, you know, it may have been entirely psychological. It might have been a hallucination, a psychotic instant, who knows what. But nevertheless, in the context of this book of true ghost stories, as you say, it was much more chilling than a nun in a habit appearing at the window of a ruined abbey. And was, was he frightened? He was at first, and he was sort of paralysed with fear because there was no explanation for it. But then he became sort of fascinated by it and the fear subsided. And then he, he, he said it was just like watching it unfold and play out. It, it was riveting. So it was certainly frightening to read about. And definitely we, me and Andy then drew on that just as a little seed of an idea when we were writing the night I'm seeing that. story. I'm seeing yeah. that on the stage as yeah. that warehouse and the light going on and off. And yeah. So yeah. it's the thing of ghosts not as something from an old story, but as something else entirely. People often ask me what my regular London pub is but that assumes there's a pub I can easily return to, so please stop asking that. London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The more struck when... Um Esteemed Yvette Fielding, who took over from me. On of course. Show, and then went on to do Most Wanted, is always afraid. And apart from the ones in theatres, and obviously, you know, actors are hugely superstitious folks, so they are prone to this sort of thing. But the ones in theatres often presage, ghosts in theatres often presage good luck, you know, or at least, you know, they, they are positive. But I'm, I'm struggling in this book to find examples of the benign, of ghosts who having made what I think must be a difficult journey back from the afterlife, putting on those clothes again, to appear, you know, may not wish us harm at all. They may presage, you know, it's okay here. Look, I'm, I'm kind of around. You can't see me all the time, but I'm kind of around. But don't be scared. And yet, of course, the whole tone of this book is we don't understand it and it wishes us harm. I mean, there's, I would say there's two categories. There's, there's definitely that that more fear-filled one or, or that's full of sort of doom and ill omen. But there is also just the strange and bizarre, like this one in Highgate, Pond Square in Highgate. It says, has the oddest apparition of all. This is the ghost of a chicken, which Sir Francis Bacon stuffed with snow as an experiment. It is seen flapping its wings. 
Now that's, you know, that's... <laughs> Sorry, he what? <laughs> <laughs> he stuffed it with snow as an experiment. How old was he at the time? Was there a parental interference? Well, maybe a very was a, irresponsible thing to do. Maybe it was about food preservation. <laughs> so obviously it was alive when he did it or else it wouldn't come back as a ghost. But then you contrast that with, uh, you know, I'm also uh, in the London section. Now, this was another one that terrified me as a child. It's 50 Berkeley Square, which has had for many years a reputation as um, the most haunted house in England. Yeah. It said, um, it's this one. It's, um, it says, the stories are numerous and varied, but one tells of two sailors who broke in because they had no lodging and experienced something so horrible that one died of fright and the other jumped out of the window in terror. Again, that's a perfect short story in one sentence. It is. And also, you know, a recruitment poster for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, uh, but what did they see? What could they what possibly they have see? seen? What did they see? Yeah. One of my favourites is the drumming boy of, uh, I think it's Halfham, who uh, Tom Hewson was pushed down the well by a squire, little drummer boy. But his mother was a witch. So his descendants, she said, would be drummed to their deaths. And I think they spoke to me because my, my son is a drummer. Oh, yes. And luckily for him, nobody's ever been tempted to take any sort of action like that. But I can tell you, if they did, I would become a witch on his behalf. Because, you know, he's, he's a drummer. He's just learning. He's a kid. So, you know, he's got to practice somewhere. But some of them, I think, are genuinely so odd and unexplained as to make you feel... It must be true. <laughs> There's one, in fact, the Grey Lady, which is possibly the ghost of Florence Nightingale, has been seen by many members of staff at St Thomas's Hospital, including a matron. <laughs> what more proof do you need? And often, you know, when you hear ghost stories, people who, who have had strange encounters, they have that quality. They're told by people who are the last people you would ever imagine to make up a story, say, for the purposes of attention-seeking or... Um, to tell a tall tale, to, to get a reaction out of you. They're often the most ordinary people, the most mundane people in temperament, and yet they will have an extraordinary story. I mean, my wife's mother's, one of her partners, when my wife was growing up, was a very down-to-earth West Indian man who would never have made up any kind of story. He came into the living room in the house where they were in a state of absolute terror because he'd seen an old woman on the landing who couldn't possibly have been there because the door was locked. There was no one else in the house. There was no other way in and out. And there was no explanation for it. There was no doubt that he'd see her in, in his mind. It wasn't something that he'd half seen out of the corner of his eye. She was there. And you, and you often get that quality in those kinds of stories of just totally inexplicable. I said when I was a kid, I, I was a believer and I yearned to believe and experience. I became much more sceptical as I got older and, and certainly don't take ghosts at face value in the way I would have done when I was a kid when people talk about them. And yet the only experience I've had like that still has that quality of there's no explanation for it, which is when we first moved back up to Yorkshire, we were renting a house and our eldest daughter was just a baby. And she had a little elephant that she played with in the bath that had a sucker on it. And you would stick it on the tiles and get a cup and you'd pour water in the top of the elephant and it would come out of its trunk. And it was a Victorian house we were renting with very high ceilings. And I, 
got up in the night for a wee, went into the bathroom, and this elephant was stuck halfway up the wall, so far up that I had to get it down. I had to stand on the edge of the bath on tiptoes, and I could just about reach its trunk. And I was the tallest person in the house by a foot. And to this day, I have no explanation by what phenomena that elephant got halfway up the bathroom wall. It was very strange and very creepy. It felt like someone was toying with you. It sounds, yeah, almost playful. Playful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there will be an explanation. But the point is, because you don't know what that explanation is and it's not obvious, you can't help but make a story up to account for it. And a playful spirit is there for you to seize on as a story to make sense of these anomalous... There's one like that in the book. There's um, obviously cinemas and theatres and things are, are renowned for having lots of ghosts, but the Coronet Cinema in, in Notting Hill, when they were having it redecorated, a pot of paint used to be moved into this room which wasn't going to be decorated and they would find it there every morning. And again, the building had been locked at night, everybody left at the same time. So there was no explanation for this mysterious pot of paint. And I think I'm more inclined to believe in ghosts that do that <laughs> rather than those that carry their head under their arm for eternity. Yes. You know, that sort of playful quality. Because actually it ties in with with your interest in and, and your your um, your efficacy at magic. You know, that, that sort of crossover of of it, it happens but you you know how it happens, but you still can't quite explain it. Well, and that's one of the things that gives you a little window into the psychology of it all, is if you have any knowledge of the methods and practice of, uh, of magic and conjurers, is that you begin to understand how easy it is to manipulate people's perceptions and, and or how easy it is for people to believe they've seen something happen that hasn't happened at all. Because that's, of course, what skillful magicians do. They deceive people into thinking that some kind of phenomena has happened that hasn't happened, and often by the most banal means. And I had an experience back when I was actually performing magic much more than I do now. I mainly did children's parties, doing magic for children, but I was experimenting with branching out into doing adult parties. I did a fairly straightforward basic mind-reading trick that's like 101 in the book of How to Read Minds, whereby you've, without giving the method away, somebody has written something down, a remembered thing from their childhood, and then they've destroyed the bit of paper. And without them knowing, you've been able to see what they've put on the bit of paper. Um, but they don't suspect that. And then I went through this whole thing of, I'm reaching into your mind now. The thing that she'd written on the paper was a swing in a playground, a child swing. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, I know what swings look like in playgrounds, so I can build up a bit of a bit of a story around that so I, I went through the whole thing of I can see oh, there's a there's a wooden I think it's a slide over here and the, the wood's really rough on it and there's there's sort of blue paint on the metal and it's peeling a bit so I just sort of built up a bit of a story until I got to the swing because most children's playgrounds look the same or they did in the 70s anyway by the time I got to the reveal of it's a swing isn't it she was so convinced that I hadn't just described the swing, but I'd described the whole playground exactly as she saw it in her memory, a very specific playground, not a generic one, that she was utterly freaked out and was convinced that somehow I'd got in her head and 
pulled this whole memory out and there was no other explanation for it. And she was so freaked out that she wouldn't calm down. And I had to take her on one side at the end of the evening and say, look, it's just a magic trick. It's, I didn't really do it. It's, I didn't tell her how it was done, but I just said, I promise you, it's just a magic. No. She said, no, that wasn't a magic trick. You saw inside my mind. You saw exactly what I was seeing because there's no other explanation for it. And she would not be argued out of it, even with me explaining to her, to her face. And there was something quite instructive for me then about that, the power of a story. Because if the story is a good story and has meaning to someone, there's nothing more powerful. And there was nothing I could have done to her because she just, we just stumbled into a great story and she, she wasn't going to have it taken away from her because it meant something to her. But that's exactly like you telling lies as a child, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yes. that, it's that sort of... <laughs> Although it was, there was more expediency often in the yeah. lies I told as a child. But there's something about the, the power of it, isn't there, really? The fact that you can say something to somebody, which you know not to be true, it becomes the truth. So there's an extraordinary power in that. Well, certainly, if you're adept at spinning a tale and making it sound real, and and you know, and if you're doing it to malign purpose, uh, absolutely, yeah. I would like to think that my lies as a child were were not malignant. It was more things like I, I'd broken the kettle and didn't want to get in trouble, so I said I hadn't broken the kettle. It was it wasn't anything more sinister than that. I hastened to. But no, you're right. The essence is the same, isn't it? Well, and and, you know, the power of words and and distraction and well, and we live in an age now where never has that been more toxic because of the technology that there is that allows people unedited and unfiltered to to put out whatever they want and and to spread it far and wide. And if they've got a good enough story to tell, like me telling a story about being able to see a playground in someone's mind, but, you know, they've got a more malignant purpose behind it, they can go far with that and indeed have. And can take uh, your voice and make it sound like you telling the story again. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like more important than ever that we understand how vulnerable we are to believing things that aren't true because we want to believe them. In your career, Jeremy, apart, apart from your musical exploits, <laughs> uh, yes, um, Flowers for Agatha and Rudolf Rocker, um, you, are, you are not the performer. You are the writer and the, the creator. And in fact, I saw there's, there's a lovely documentary about the making of Series 3 of League of Gentlemen with Helen <laughs> Buxton. At one point, you say candidly that you have a terrible fear of how they impersonate you because <laughs> they impersonate absolutely everybody else so sooner or later they must get round to you so obviously you performed as a musician and as a, a magician but but you have very much not performed as a writer now you know because you who knows you doubt your talent and also it frees you from not hanging around like Mark Gatiss and Steve Pemberton did <laughs> hanging around in HMV by their own uh, videos to, to possibly be recognized that that wouldn't work for you either it's uh i mean there's a simple the simple reason for it is it's not it was nothing to do with being shy because i i love nothing more than standing on the stage and show it off it was to do with the kind of comedy that that we were doing in the league of gentlemen was character comedy and mark stephen reese even at the very beginning of, of their careers were as gifted 
and talented as actors and, uh, and portrayers of character as they are now, you know. And I didn't have that skill set. I hadn't been to drama school. I wasn't. I, I wasn't that interested in acting. As I, I would go, I would do the school plays, but I never wanted to go to drama school or study acting or anything like that. So I, I just didn't have, or didn't sense having that in me. And uh, I, I did at the very first show that we did as the league, or even before we were called the league, but when we were all working together, I, I was in it. But it became apparent to me by the end of that short run that I couldn't do what they were doing. And I didn't really want to be on stage with them doing it because it didn't work, you know, because they were, it was like being stood there with three Peter Sellers. And as my mother said at the time, you're a talented amateur, is how she put it. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't struggle with it because it wasn't what I was interested in. I wasn't, what I was interested in is pretty much what I've gone on to do, which was first and foremost thinking of myself as being a writer, but then also loving production and loving um, making stuff too. So that was where my heart was. What what does success look like for you? What does it feel like? Oh, it's it's being able to make a living doing the stuff that you find most interesting and fascinating. That's as simple as that, you know, and somehow I've been able to do that for 25 years and hopefully we'll carry on being able to do that. Um, yes, it's that, you know, getting up in the morning and working on a show that, you know, that you think is terrific and that you can't wait to find out what's going to happen as you're writing the next pages of the script or a book as, as with the Warlock effect. That's as pretty much as good as it gets. And working with your friends as well. That's the other thing I've been blessed with, for, for working first with Mark, Stephen, Reese, who were friends first and foremost, and then working with Andy, you know, and crying with laughter at the... <laughs> sat in a theatre. I mean, I can't tell you the, the amount of crying with laughter that there is working with Andy Nyman because he's extraordinary. And, uh, he is. He so, is. you know, that's the, 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 there is nothing more blessed than that. That's success. What a joy. Thank <laughs> you. And this, this book too. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.